All right, well, uh, tonight we are going to be in Judges chapter 9, verses 22 through 57. So that's Judges chapter 9, verses 22 through 57. And I will bring the text up on the screen. You can find the passage uh, on page 209 in the Pew Bible. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. Uh, Hear the word of the Lord. Abimelech ruled over Israel three years, and God sent an evil spirit between Abimelech and the leaders of Shechem. And the leaders of Shechem dealt treacherously with Abimelech, that the violence done to the seventy sons of Jeroboam might come and their blood be laid on Abimelech their brother who killed them, and on the men of Shechem who strengthened his hand to kill his hands to kill his brothers. And the leaders of Shechem put men in ambush against him on the mountaintops, and they robbed all who passed by them along the way. And it was told to Abimelech. And Gaul, the son of Ebed, moved into Shechem with his relatives, and the leaders of Shechem put confidence in him. They went out into the field and gathered the grapes from their vineyards and trod them and held a festival. And they went into the house of their their God and ate and drank and reviled Abimelech. And Gaul, the son of Ebed, said, who is Abimelech? And, and who are we, men, uh, who are we of Shechem, that we should serve him? Is he not the son of Jeroboam, and is not Zebel his officer? Uh, serve the men of Hamor, the father of Shechem. But why should we serve him? Would, would that this people were under my hand? Then I would remove Abimelech. I would say to Abimelech, increase your army and come out. When Zebel, the ruler of the city, heard the words of Gal, the son of Ebed, uh, his anger was kindled, and he sent messengers to Abimelech secretly, saying, Behold, Gal, the son of Ebed, and his relatives have come to Shechem, and they're stirring up the city against you. Now, therefore, go by night, you and the people who are with you, and set an ambush in the field. Then in the morning, as soon as the sun is up, rise early and rush upon the city. And when he and, it, and the people who are with him come out against you, you may do to them as your hand finds to do. So Abimelech and all the men who were with him rose up by night and set an ambush against Shechem in four companies. And Gaul, the son of Ebed, went out uh, and stood in the entrance of the gate of the city. And Abimelech and the people who were with him rose from the ambush. And when Gaul saw the people, he said to Zebel, Look, people are coming down from the mountaintops. And Zebel said to him, you mistake the shadow of the mountains for men. Gaul spoke again and said, uh, Look, people are coming down from the center of the land, and one company is coming from the direction of the diviner's oak. Then Zebel said to him, Where's your mouth now, you who said, Who's Abimelech, that we should serve him? Are not these the people whom you despised? Go out now and fight with them. And Gaul went out at the head of the leaders of Shechem and fought with Abimelech. And Abimelech chased him, and he fled before him, and many fell wounded up to the entrance of the gate. And Abimelech lived in Arumah, and Zebel drove out Gaul and his relatives, so that they could not dwell in Shechem. On the following day, the people went out into the field, and Abimelech was told. He took his people and divided them into three companies and set an ambush in the fields. And he looked and saw the people coming out of the city, so he rose against them and killed them. 
uh, Abimelech and the company that was with him rushed forward and stood at the entrance of the gate of the city, while the two companies rushed upon all who were in the field and killed them. And Abimelech fought against the city all that day. He captured the city and killed the people who were in it. And he raised the city and he sowed it with salt. When all the leaders of the Tower of Shechem heard it, uh, they, uh, they entered the stronghold of the house of El-Barit. And Abimelech was told that all the leaders of the Tower of Shechem were gathered together. And Abimelech went up to Mount Zalman. Uh, and he and all the people who were with him. And Abimelech took an axe with his hand and cut down a bundle of brushwood and took it up and laid it on his shoulder. And he said to the men who were with him, What you have seen me do, hurry and do as I have done. Uh, so every one who of the people uh, cut down his bundle and following Abimelech put it against the stronghold. And they set the stronghold on fire uh, over them so that all the people of the Tower of Shechem also died, about a thousand men and women. Then Abimelech went to Thebes and encamped against Thebes and captured it. But there was a strong tower within the city, and all the men and women of all, and all the leaders of the city fled to it and shut themselves in. And they went up to the roof of the tower. And Abimelech came to the tower and fought against it and drew near to the tower to burn it with fire. And a certain woman threw an upper millstone on Abimelech's head and crushed his skull. Then he called quickly out to uh, the young man, his, uh, his armor bearer, and said to him, Draw your sword and kill me, lest they say of me, A woman killed him. And his young man thrust him through, and he died. And when the men of Israel saw that Abimelech was dead, everyone departed to his home. Thus God returned the evil of Abimelech, which he committed against his father in killing his seventy brothers. And God also made all the evil of the men of Shechem return on their heads. And upon them came the curse of Jotham, the son of Jeroboam. Thus ends the reading of God's holy word. So, we're getting into the wild territory in the book of Judges. And we're only at chapter 9. Uh, things are going to, uh, they're getting out of hand, they're going to stay out of hand. They're going to get more and more out of hand as we go. But here in this chaotic episode in the, in the region of the tribe of Manasseh, we have here uh, the, the highlighting of the chaos that was certainly gripping not only, uh, not only uh, this part, but also the very heart of Israel. And, and in chaotic times, we may well wonder, where is God in all of this? What is he doing? When will he act? Now, as we see here, God is certainly at work, and the focus here in this chapter is clearly, in this section, is on God administering, bringing about his justice. But there is much going on here, and so I want to tackle this by first uh, considering uh, Abimelech's um, a story and the narrative itself that's laid out. and just going to go back and kind of give us a nice little summary so we can wrap our heads exactly around what, what uh, we just read and then to consider the significance of what happened, namely that even in chaos, God's justice will always prevail. And so first, we need to consider a, a compelling narrative that is written for us uh, in essentially three acts. We're going to talk about the turn against Abimelech, then the battle for Abimelech, and then finally the end of Abimelech. And uh, now I wanted to bring up a map here, so I just want you to see where it was going on here. So the, the, you've got Shechem right there, and uh, in the upper kind of 
upper right is where um, is where Abimelech has uh, had been living, but then he went and set up to shop in Shechem. That white line going straight up from Shechem, that's Jotham. Jotham did his, did his curse, and then he booked it out of there into Issachar uh, to get out of there because he knew that his life was forfeit uh, to the people of Shechem, and he wasn't going to even stay in the, in the tribe of Manasseh. So, uh, so that, this is where all of this is going on, is right there in, uh, in Shechem, uh, and indicated there on the map. And so first, uh, the first act of this narrative here for us is the turn against Abimelech in verses 22 to 29. So Abimelech, uh, kind of we last left our not hero, uh, he established his bloody reign as a regional warlord uh, over Shechem and what seems to be a few nearby towns. Uh, but as we see, there is unsurprisingly no honor among thieves, and in time, things sour between Abimelech and the leaders of Shechem. And so they put some men in place in order to ambush Abimelech, and of course he finds out about it. Uh, but when you put men in ambush, what are they going to do? They're going to sit there, and they're going to get hungry, and they want to get paid, and so they start robbing everybody that comes by. Now, that also could have been intentional, because in uh, robbing a bunch of people, then uh, as they're going in, at, in and out of Shechem, well, then that's going to affect trade. Uh, and also, um, it's not just an ancient thing. If there's it's kind of always been true if there is one issue that will get uh, the, the average people to turn against a political leader, it is a rise in local crime, right? <laughs> so if it's not safe to travel the roads, you will not like whoever your politicians are. And, um, and on top of all that, there's this man named Gaul who uh, moved into town and started stirring uh, the pot against Abimelech. Um, you know, he's saying, yeah, well, you know, Abimelech might be half Shechemite, uh, but he's still the son of Jeroboam, the Israelite judge. And doesn't Jeroboam mean let Baal contend with him, right? It doesn't mean, isn't that a name of, uh, essentially of, of curse as they're waiting for Baal to, you know, get his justice for what, uh, what Gideon had done to his altar. And, uh, and Gaul appeals to Canaanite tradition. You know, let's, we need to go back to the good old days. Uh, we need to go back and to the pure lineage of Hamor, the father of Shechem. Uh, now bear in mind that it was uh, Jacob's son, Simeon and Levi, who had massacred uh, Hamor and his people at Shechem after his son had violated uh, Jacob's daughter. Uh, and so it was, this was the town and uh, and. and uh, but ever the politician, Gaul launches into making vague promises. I mean, I was like, I'm pretty sure I've heard politicians say that. You know, what, wouldn't oh, how great it would be if I was in charge, right? That's every politician ever. And, uh, and so he says, in fact, you know what? You know what? And he says something that you can only say after you've had a, lo- a lot of wine. Uh, you know what? I wish Abimelech was here right now. Because you know what I would say to him? Show me what you got, buddy, right? You can talk big uh, when he's not right there in front of you. Uh, and so we see it, this general treachery uh, that is brought, up, brought to a point by an ambitious man who would very much like to take Abimelech's place. Uh, for whatever reason, I, I, it's, I was reading this and I was thinking about it, and it, it reminded me of the 1972 song, You Don't Mess Around With Jim. You remember that? <laughs> you remember that song? And so, and it, you know, it's about this rough pool hustler who gets challenged by a younger hustler who comes in. 
Now, in that song, Jim gets killed and replaced by Slim. Uh, but that's because Jim did not have a friend like Zebel. <laughs> All right? He did not have a friend to say, hey, watch out when you come in the door because he's going to stab you. <laughs> right? so, uh, so, so this leads us into the next section, the second act, which is the battle for Abimelech. Zebel was essentially the local kind of mayor of the town, and he, uh, he was in charge of the city, and he wisely uh, kept his tongue while Gaul was, uh, was running his mouth and informed Abimelech of Gaul's boasting. And he invited, uh, he invited him to sneak up and to set an ambush against Gaul. And uh, now keep in mind that, so just think about this. So the leaders of Shechem have set up an ambush that's still waiting for Abimelech. And so now Abimelech's going to come and set up an ambush for them and the leaders. Since everybody's just setting up ambushes against each other. All right? This is, this is, this is where we're at. Okay? It's like in church history when there, where there was like there was four popes in the Catholic church because they kept excommunicating each other. Right? Uh, and so... Um, now, now uh, so one morning Gaul wakes up. One commentator said he imagined Gaul walking up with his morning coffee over the morning gate, <laughs> and say, you know, and looking over the city with Zebel and looking out, and then he and he sees this weird thing going on, and it looks like men coming down, and uh, and he asks Zebel about it, and he goes, ah, you're just seeing things, uh, and right at the right moment. Uh, when as soon as it, it can no longer be hidden that this is Abimelech and his men coming upon the city, Zebel turns and delivers uh, a speech that he no doubt rehearsed a hundred times. <laughs> right? He was waiting. He was savoring that moment to just bring it down. And he brings down the hammer. Where's your big mouth now? Now it's time to fight. And Gaul, to his credit, does. Right? He rides out at the head of, of the leaders of Shechem and goes out and promptly loses. Now, what happened the next day is uh, kind of confusing. It's, I think it's intentionally vague uh, because in verse 42, we're told that the people went out to the fields, but we're not told why they went out to the fields. We don't know if they went out to the fields to lay ambush for, for, uh, for, uh, for Abimelech. We don't know if they went out to go fight. Uh, that the verb there is usually used for going out to just work the fields. You know, some uh, one commentator just suggested, yeah, they probably just do oh, this is another Tuesday. You know, we lost our leader, but whatever. It's time to go work the fields and get food in. We still got to eat, and uh, um, uh, and so, uh, but whatever they were doing, uh, they're slaughtered by Abimelech, and then he lays siege to the city, uh, and he raises the city. R a z e destroys destroys the city. And bear in mind, this was his city. Right? This was the one that he was ruling over. And he has brought it crumbling to the ground. He destroys the city and sows it with salt, which that's still kind of confusing exactly what he, that's meant. But essentially, uh, he marked the land as infertile and uh, eternally desolate, symbolically. Um, and it would not be rebuilt for roughly 150 years before, uh, before the next uh, Shechem would pop up. And those uh, who were uh, left um, uh, ran into a defense tower. A lot of times cities would have these defense towers, kind of the last uh, refuge uh, for the people. And, uh, and so they go in there, and it's attached, just happens to be attached to the temple of their false god who fails to protect them. And, uh, um, and Abimelech burns everyone alive and kills them all. And this brings us to the end of Abimelech. So we've had the, the turn against Abimelech and then the battle for Abimelech that he seems to be winning. It, it, uh, everything's, everything's, you know, everything's turning up Abimelech so far, right? 
until he comes to verses, verse 50. So he dealt with those traitors in Shechem, but Abimelech turned his sights now on Thebes, um, which was um, uh, maybe, uh, we're not exactly sure when Thebes came on the scene here, but probably under that three-year reign that came into his control somehow. But anyway, he goes and says, I'm going to go take them out too. And everything was going just as it had before. And Abimelech uh, had the people right where he wanted, all locked up nice and tight in the tower, about to set it on fire. Uh, But right at this moment, an unnamed woman struck Abimelech in the head with a stone, with an upper millstone. And and so uh, now the way it would work with millstones is that the lower millstone was usually like a larger stone, usually roughly around 100 pounds. Then you would have a smaller stone, four to five pounds, about the size of your hand, and you would use it to grind and crush, right? That's basically what it is. So she had that stone. And she chucks it from the top of the tower, cracks him right in the head, and, uh, and he's about to die. But uh, in, that, in that day and age, um, uh, it, was a, it was a shame for a warrior to be killed by a woman, so Abimelech has his armor bearer finish him off. Um, now, it should be noted that even though he tries to do that, not only is it recorded in the book of Judges that uh, he was slain by a woman, so he's still shamed, but even, uh, even then, it was still known to everyone else because, uh, um, so it's something that you skip right over when you're reading the narrative of David and Bathsheba, and, he's, um, and so he just, has, and he, has, he just had Uriah killed. And he's hearing the report, and he's chastising them for going so near the wall. And he says, was not Abimelech killed by a woman but at the wall? Right? So it was still known. Abimelech was still shamed, and he could not escape it. And so Abimelech dies, and once he is dead, everybody goes home because there's no point anymore in fighting. And the Abimelech vanity project has run its course. Now, this narrative is an exciting narrative in and of itself. Uh, but we also note that in all of it, except for the beginning and the end, God is not mentioned. Uh, and so what does that tell us? Well, it tells us that still, in the end, God's justice will prevail. So we got our head around kind of exactly what's going on, a, little, a, a better picture of what this is, the turn against Abimelech, the battle for Abimelech, and then the end of Abimelech. But the theme of this story is God's justice will prevail even in chaos. Because we see in this text that God is in control. Abimelech's reign lasted about three years. Now notice that's three years after Jotham uttered his curse. Abimelech probably forgot about it. Or if he thought about it, laughed. Right? Well, that curse didn't work. I'm still ruler. I'm still working. I'm still doing the Abimelech thing. And, uh, and, but the reality is that if, even if Abimelech forgot about it, God did not. And in fact, we're told that all of this, at the very end, we're told all of this is to fulfill the curse of Jotham that he had uttered. And what that means is that for three years of chaos, God was in control, even though Abimelech looked like he was getting away with everything. But in the end, Abimelech received exactly what he deserved. The text says that God initiated the rift uh, between these evil conspirators. And God's purpose, in verse 24, was to repay them for the murder of Abimelech's brothers. And while the men of Shechem certainly would no doubt have their defense lawyers argue that they, they they didn't actually do the bloody deed... 
But they, in fact, did fund the murder. They strengthened the hand. They aided and abetted the murder of these 70 brothers. And so we see here the sixth commandment applies uh, not only to the hand that holds the blade, but to the one that strengthens it. But now the reckoning has come. The, the, and it's interesting because the Bible often says that, you know, uh, God, you know, he says it in this passage. Um, but it says in other places that God will often turn evil back onto the perpetrator's head. Right? It'll bring it crashing down back onto them. And, and think about literally the guy who slaughtered his brothers on a single stone has his own skull crushed by a single stone <laughs> thrown from the top of a tower. And God caused uh, those who had done the evil deeds to turn on each other and to destroy each other. And, and, and we need to remember this story because things are not, you know, we're, we're not always in control of everything in our lives. Good doesn't always prevail in the world or even in the church. Sometimes great injustices occur and it seems as though the wicked triumph. The Psalms have a lot to say about this, reminding us over and over again that the wicked may be fat and happy right now, but when you go to the temple, you can discern their end, and you don't want to be the wicked because their end is sorrow and loss in the judgment of God. But the end of the righteous, even the suffering righteous, is glory and light and peace. The Apostle Paul says too in Galatians chapter 6 verse 7, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that he will also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will reap, the, the, will reap will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. The end of Abimelech's story is a reminder that even if the church seems to be overmatched, seems to be outgunned or, or overrun, that God's people will triumph in the end. God is not mocked. His justice will prevail. We may have to wait for it. And we also see here how God uses a variety of unlikely means. First, we're told that after three years, God sent an evil spirit between Abimelech and the leaders of Shechem. Now, that could have been an actual spirit, God sovereignly uh, ordaining uh, you know, an, an evil spirit to go do that. It could also simply mean, metaphorically, using circumstances to bring about mutual distrust and hatred of these men by, letting them, by giving them over to their hearts, giving them over to their fleshly desires. But also we have to note here is what, what one scholar uh, referred to as the, the quietness of God's judgment as he uses ordinary means. There's no lightning bolts. There's no chasms opening up from the ground. There's, there, there's no plague striking the people. Instead, God uses the evil men of Shechem. He uses an unnamed woman and even Abimelech himself in order to bring about his just ends. And this should provide us with hope because it means that God can always in a moment turn a dark situation around. And we just don't see it. We just can't see it. We just don't see how it can happen. 
And so he can, you know, he, but we've seen already in, with uh, Barak and, and Deborah and, and, and Sisera, the pursuit of Sisera, that God can direct and is fleeing enemy general over to, uh, over to a lady with a bowl of milk and a tent peg, and she'll solve all your problems for you. All right? He can have a man construct his own noose, his own gallows, and, uh, upon which he'll be hung like Haman in the book of Esther. He can use the most wicked nation in the world, Babylon, to punish his own people for their disobedience and covenant breaking. This also confirms us to us reality, as Jesus said, those who live by the sword will die by the sword. And Abimelech lived by the sword. That was his life verse. But further, we see God's sovereignty again here, that Even the most evil of men are simply pawns, ultimately, in God's plan. This is true of the most evil men who set themselves against God and his people. It's true of the devil himself. God's judgment, uh, we see here, is not always brought about by miracles or natural disasters. Sometimes God simply works his judgment uh, quietly through the objects of his judgment. But but whatever God may do, it gives us, his people, the confidence that God doesn't forget and that God will repay. And this leads us to, I think, the ultimate comfort here and and the specific point we need to take away, which is that God will deliver. The confidence that God will deliver his people from their evil leaders. God will deliver his people from their evil leaders. You know, what we've discussed here about God delivering us from evil leaders and things like that, it's certainly true of, uh, you know, our political situation. That's absolutely true with evil rulers and evil kings, absolutely. Um, Even if our leaders are evil in our own country, even if chaos reigns, it will not be so forever. And that's not even saying till kingdom come. Sometimes it may last three years, sometimes it may last longer, but there is an expiration date. But when we look at Israel in the Old Testament, and we're looking for application, points of application, the first point of application is never America, it's the church. Israel is the people of God that God has covenanted with. And so we might, it doesn't mean that there's no application for our politics, but the first level application here we're talking is about the church. And the church is always going to be a mixture of truth and error, a mixture of purity and corruption. This is true of the church broadly. It's true of our own denomination. And it's even true of our own church right here. And we just got through our leadership meeting. We were talking about what are our strengths? What are our weaknesses? Where are we less effective? And and, and then what what are our opportunities? Are there things that we're missing that we're not seeing? And and also what are the threats that prevent us from making disciples? What What does that look like? You know, we're, we're looking through that. Right? And we noted that you know, the weakness column will not, not cease to be filled until we're in glory. And so, and so we don't need to hide from it, but face it. We don't need to be afraid of it, but have confidence that God will lead us. 
And so we are called to act. We have to be careful here. I'm not calling for us to be resigned when things are chaotic, when evil men are in charge, or, or, or if we have corrupt rulers, especially in the church. We are called to act as we have the power to act, and we have the capacity and responsibility to act. We are called to. And so if the church, you know, if church leadership acts in a wicked manner, um, then, then like if, if our church leadership acts in a wicked manner, then, uh, then our church members are, it's incumbent upon them to file complaints with the session and with our presbytery if we won't listen. And, to, you know, if I were to act wickedly in some capacity, it would be the responsibility of the elders to bring charge against me through the, through the presbytery. If the presbytery acted wickedly and made decisions that, were, that we deemed to be incredibly wrong, uh, then we would file a complaint with the Presbytery. And if they didn't listen, we'd file it with the General Assembly. Right? I mean, you can go through these processes, but there comes a point when maybe then you've exhausted all of those. You've done all the things. And maybe you've made some traction. Maybe you haven't. But there comes a point where we say, we've done all that we can do, and all we can do now is entrust it to God. But if we're in that position, then we're in the same care of orphans and widows. And we know how God feels about them. He loves them. He protects them. He says, they're mine. And so we entrust ourselves and we entrust gladly, even when we've done all we can do or we've exhausted all the avenues and they haven't worked and we're so frustrated. We know that at the end of the day, God's justice will not fail. It will prevail. He is not mocked. And we know that because of Abimelech. So, as we think about Abimelech, the story here is is sordid and tragic. But even that being the case, it confirms to us that we rightly place our confidence in the Lord. There are things that we don't know about this story. Why did God wait three years? Why not one year? Why not five? We don't know. Why does God allow any of this to happen? The psalmist asks the same question, right? They ask, how long, O Lord? Repeatedly, over and over again. Now, but when the psalmist asks that, they don't ask it just because they really want the evil and wickedness to end, but because they know it will end. So they ask, how long? When's the expiration date? Lord, because I know it's coming. Why? Because you're the king. You're my God. And I know that you will not let this stand. Your justice will prevail. And for us who are on this side of the cross, we know that Christ will return and that he will bring all of God's justice with him. He comes once, once meek and mild, born of a virgin. And then he comes again riding on a horse with fire and judgment proceeding from his mouth. Whatever may come, we can be sure of this. God's justice will prevail. And so tonight, let us put our confidence in the Lord. Let us not draw back in fear, but let us proceed forward with a holy and humble boldness, a confidence in the Lord and trusting that he will act in his time. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that even though we may not know when, 
that we may cry out with the psalmist, how long, O Lord? We may, we may wrestle in our hearts the, about the, why you would sovereignly allow certain things to happen in our lives, in, in, in the church, in our country, in our families. Lord, we know that you are just and holy and good. We know that you will satisfy your justice, that you have indeed even satisfied your justice in our salvation by punishing your own son for our sins on the cross. And that you have given us grace and mercy and not given us the justice we deserve. Yet, Lord, we long for the wrongs to be set right. The list is so long and it continues to grow. And so, Lord, we pray that you would in due time, in due season, bring a righteous end to the Abimelechs of our own time and our own place. Father, we pray that you would bring your justice to bear. We pray, Lord, for repentance. We pray, Father, that, that sinners would turn and trust in Jesus Christ and be saved. But, Lord, ultimately, we entrust all of it to you because we know you are good You are righteous and you are just. And we know this because we know your blessed son and it is in his name that we pray. Amen.